Praise be to God. Glad you're here with us as we are continuing in Romans chapter 8. If you've been with us, then your hearts are ready and minds are full. If you're just joining us, go back and listen to the last couple weeks because we're talking about suffering and it's pretty it's pretty deep and it's exciting as we're here and ready to handle this with the, the hope of the gospel. But for those, there's a lot of good preparation that Paul's got us focused on the glory of God and the purpose and the power of the gospel that really prepared us to embrace this topic of uh, being thankful as he ends another letter saying, be thankful in all circumstances, which includes suffering, which includes what we don't know yet, what we're going to be called to endure. And he says, yeah, be thankful for that too. And, and so I'll never forget hearing of a, a pastor whose wife passed away and, and his daughter came and, and was just weeping and mourning. And it was heading into this Thanksgiving Christmas season. And, and he's like, I don't want to read this, this verse, but that was the verse they had for the devotion that day. And it said, be thankful in all circumstances, even when mom passed away, we're going to be thankful. And, and that's the unique thing about the gospel that no other religion or ideology or philosophy will even attempt to discuss, much less give any weight or credibility to how do we endure? How do we encounter suffering? And that's what we're, we're looking at today. And it is with groaning in the spirit. That's the title of the message. We're diving in to the middle of Romans 8. Next week, we'll wrap Romans 8 up and then jump into Christmas full headlong. So let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to guide us. Lord, we ask that as we come, many with heavy hearts, with full minds, Lord, may we continue to, to think upon your love and truth and hope, and may our hearts be full of your word. And Lord, may our hands and feet run to do the things you've called us to do. May your spirit fill this place, give us understanding and wisdom as we read your word, to know you more and to be able to love more and serve others like you served us. In Jesus' name, amen. So Romans 6, 7, and 8, looking specifically at how faith in Christ concretely and, and profoundly changes us and transforms us into the image of God's Son. When we get here, we're going through 6, 7, and 8, and the subject of suffering comes up. And it's crucial because our life is going to be, at some point, if not past in the future, you're going to encounter suffering. And if we're equipped in any spiritual way for real life, we have to see how faith in Christ leads us into and allows us to be thankful in that suffering, in that struggle, in the brutalities of life. We talk about this going into Thanksgiving and, and Christmas time, and really, if you're one who's encountering suffering going into the, this season, you might be struggling and you might think to yourself, I'm the only one struggling this way. I'm the only one who's suffering. Everyone else is happy. And that goes along with the same lie that most churches are, are so consumed with, your happiness, not holiness. And when you read scripture, there's nothing about happiness. From the beginning, from the beginning, God doesn't say, oh, Adam and Eve, I'm so, so, I'm, I'm so concerned about your happiness. Let's pick out some clothes. What do you think you should wear now? He just gives them clothes. And then he says, hey, Abram, let's go. And he's like, oh, okay. Not concerned at all about his happiness, his holiness, though. And, and yes, there is 
plan, provision, protection, guidance, and grace, and all that comes along with it. But primarily, it's, no, I'm going to use you for my glory and your good. Come along the journey. I don't know about any of you, but if I went to my wife right now and said, hey, we're actually, all the family plans we have, none of that, we're actually selling our house and moving. God told me last night, we're gone. That would be a hard conversation to have. And Abram did that. And it wasn't just selling a house, buying another, it was a tent. You had to like pack it up and it was massive and animals and all the stuff. And then you had to walk. It wasn't like, cool, get in the car and, no, it's a challenge. And so we see in this text, Paul brings us to the warning about suffering. And then secondly, he gives us three resources for dealing with suffering. And finally, it tells us how you can be sure these resources will work. So first, the warning about suffering. This word groaning is a very strong word. It's a word that means an expression of pain. So this word often was used in many cases in in Greek literature to, to express the cry of someone who's facing death the pain of death and the cry that's associated with that. Oftentimes in Greek literature, it was was used for women giving childbirth because in that time, the the death rate was so high. It was 30% or above for women in childbirth. In those times, there was this groaning, this crying out of excruciating pain when giving birth to bring life in and sometimes at the cost of the mom. The word's also used for groaning for warriors on the battlefield after the fighting's done and the, the, the noise of battle and the smoke clears and then all that's left by many veterans and firsthand observers of war is the groaning of all the wounded and some mortally wounded that are groaning in pain, crying out for medics, come and bandage this wound or I'm going to die. It's this groaning, this cry that's released in that moment of extreme pain. Paul's actually speaking about the creation groaning, which might seem a little odd to you as you're reading. It's like, man, he's all of a sudden he just moves past the spirit into the physical realm and says, no, the physical realm, the, the creation is, is groaning, which reading scripture, I, I never really saw, but it was always interesting, this, the, the social or cultural commentary of global warming. It's like, dude, how, every time someone would bring that up, I'm like, how arrogant do you think you are that you're going to change the, the creation and cool the earth or heat the earth in, in, a, in a way that really is going to have substantial impact when we see God's the one who created it all and he moves the, the sun forward or back or stops the day and he, he can do that but we're the, create, we're the created, he's the creator and it's interesting how the, the creation is subject and it's groaning in verse 20 in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We'll we'll talk about that later. But what does this mean? It means everything, not just us suffering in the world steadily, irreversibly, inexorably, unavoidably wearing down, wearing out. We see the second law of thermodynamics, which confirms that the universe itself is deteriorating with this whole idea of evolution kind of losing steam. I'll never forget in freshman year, I'm at a public high, high school and they bring in this other scientist and he, and he just spits facts out. And he's like, hey, not really allowed to be here, but I'm like, sweet, we're rebe- re- rebels. And, and he shows 
the, the fossil record actually shows a decrease of species. But if evolution was true, then you'd have new species and you'd have new fossil records and it would be expanding. But it, it's the opposite. It shows how law of thermodynamics, the earth is wearing out, which I was pretty disappointed. I was like, oh, so there's no hope for the woolly mammoth to like get re, like Jurassic Park style, just threw some serum in there and some stuff and all. No, bummer. We, th- we think about that and you realize as much as we want to, our physical heart is not like an electronic computer battery that just goes. It's, it's wound up and then it starts unwinding. And our physical bodies are wearing out. No matter how many knees or hips you put in your joints, our bodies are wearing out. Our heart is wearing out. As a kid, I always kind of laughed. I'm like, that's poor lady. What do you mean she fell down and was like down on the ground for days or weeks and no one knew? Like she couldn't get up. She couldn't like at least roll or, and then, you know, the life alert thing, you push a button. I'm like, that's kind of crazy, weird. And then as you get older, it's like, oh, now I get it. You know, like I remember one day I was going to work and then all of a sudden I wasn't going to work because I was on the ground in excruciating pain. My back just like, I didn't know there was muscles or tendons there that just seized up. And I was like, oh, there's something there that that's not normal. I can't breathe. And my wife's like, just stretch. You'll be fine. I'm like, I don't, what stretch? Like, that's not something I do. Obviously, that's why I got a cramp. Didn't know there was a muscle there that needed to be stretched out. But our bodies, like as a kid, I just surfed, skated, what was sleep? Like I could, you had lights. You just skated at night, surfed in the day. It was great. You just did whatever you want, whenever you wanted. And all of a sudden, the older I got, sleep was a good thing. And my body would just, hey, we're tired. We're going to sleep now. Doesn't matter if you're driving in the car. It's like, oh, maybe I should probably sleep. Like that's what normal people do. Apparently, my body is wearing out. I need to take notice of that. And apparently, when you get older and you fall down, you can't just get back up as easy. You feel things quicker. Close friends and family and circumstances, time's working to to separate you. It's interesting when you look back over your friendships and and time, and it's like, man, there's, there's things at work. And the difference that this makes when we understand it, because we live in a culture in which suffering is an anomaly. We think... If you're savvy enough, if things work out right and you're smart enough, you, you can move all your money over to, to the blockchain or gold before they recall the dollar and, and everything is digitized and controlled and you can avoid it or you can stockpile rice or put a sea container in your backyard, which some of you might already be doing. It's not gonna, you're not going to outsmart that Jesus said, I'm coming back when everything's go sideways and everything's going sideways and there's earthquakes, and there's floods, and there's wars, and rumors of wars, and everyone's reading the Bible going, hey, that's exactly what Jesus said, and then the end will come. But he said for us to do one thing, preach the gospel to the whole world. So that's what we're called to do, but that means, that means Paul's telling us because we know the gospel, because we're adopted as sons and daughters, now he says there's suffering involved. If children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer, in verse 17. I never heard that in Awanas. No knock on Awanas. But as a kid, they didn't say, great, you love Jesus. Now you're going to suffer like Jesus. I was like, wait, put the flannel graph up. He looks like a beauty pageant winner. Check out his makeup. And we've done that. We've said, hey, it's about your happiness. Here's some Advil. When you get a cough, just call Teladoc at 5 a.m. and get the medicine delivered. Why would you get in your car and drive somewhere and make an appointment? That's, that's for like 1995 people, right? We're technologically advanced. We can avoid suffering. We don't have to have a cold any longer than we... 
need to. We can just get medicine like that and everything's fine. But scripture tells us everything in your heart that it longs for. It's like a kid on the seashore. I remember the few times I did play in the sand and I think that's why I don't like sand that much. It irritates you and it, and it, it leaves you greatly disappointed. We'd build these massive sandcastles as kids and put a moat in there to protect against the waves. And then you'd go eat lunch and come back and you're like, where'd the sandcastle go? Because the tide rose up and just demolished your sandcastle. You spent all morning building and there's literally nothing left. There's no remnants. You're looking around going, there's sand dollars everywhere. There's not even evidence that there was a giant hole here an hour ago. The, The tide just rose up and just took it all out. And that's what so many people We've been led, no, it's about your happiness. Have fun, do this, protect it, provide for yourself. This is your kingdom, this is your life. But the end, he's gonna say, okay, well, what'd you do for your life? And you're gonna point to the seashore and go, it was right there, it was awesome, it was massive, I had this, I accomplished this, this thing was a great experience, and it, where is it, what is it? It's gone. And that's what the lie, that the, especially the American gospel and our culture, no, avoid suffering. No, suffering's not really for you, actually. That was for 1990, it's 2023. We have it all figured out. Take this, go here, do this, believe this, think this way. You don't, have, you don't have to think about it. And Paul says, hey, I want to talk to you about suffering. We're going to join, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. You might be able to avoid suffering physically in your early 30s, but eventually it's going to be unavoidable. You can't hide with Advil or makeup. The lines are going to be too, too intense. The pain's going to be too much. It's unavoidable. And the lesson is you need resources. You can't outsmart it. You can't be savvy enough. You can't be stoic and strong enough. So the the three resources we have to deal with suffering is prayer. When you suffer, you process the suffering through prayer. We need these three resources. The first is prayer. And gross exaggeration, everybody prays. Statistics tell us a, a high percentage that people pray. It's kind of unfair exaggeration. <clears throat> even atheist friends I know, they don't really appreciate it. This, this little thing, I even heard it this week, right? There's no atheists in foxholes, which is interesting because this soccer player, Megan, on her final game, uh, snapped her Achilles tendon, pun intended. When her Achilles tendon snapped, she said, well, there's proof that God doesn't exist because a good God wouldn't take out my Achilles tendon on my last game. Therefore, God doesn't exist. And it's just, again, shows the arrogance and the hurt that anyone that claims God doesn't exist, they, they point with evidence and say there's evidence, but really there's just hurt and pain. And, and generally when problems happen, it's an emergency flare prayer. If there's anybody up there, help, help me out. You should just keep me from pain, keep me from suffering. I'm in a tight spot here. The consequences of my decisions led me here. Save me and I'll serve you. And I'm always intrigued by the prayers that God hears and answers. But usually it's the ones that really meant it and we're like, yeah. I'll never forget the prayer of a Mexican mafia drug cartel. He was high, high up. And then here I am, a student in high school in Mexico and he's telling me a testimony. I was at the border in this shootout cornered. I had no ammo and I just prayed, God, if you, if you get me out of here, I'll serve you. So God saved him miraculously. He goes to the high up 
drug lord cartel, and he is so high up that there's no way out but death. But he trusted, he, he was trusted so much, they let him go. And he's like, so now I live in this small town in Mexico, and I just serve the Lord. And it's like, I think the second half is more profound. Like, God getting you out of bullets is one thing, but then God getting you out and, get, and uh, allowing favor for you to walk out, and he's like, yeah, so now I'm just here serving the Lord. But it's the transformation that we're talking about. How, what, what, what is that change like? How do you walk away from one life to another? And we see in 14 and 15, you receive the spirit of sonship. And by him, that's the Holy Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. What's Abba? It's a universal language. Every kid in every culture says to an effect, Papa, Abba, or Daddy. It's this affectionate Dada. Something like to that effect. What's this saying? Here it's saying because of what Jesus has done for you, because of what it means to be in Jesus Christ, when you groan, when you cry, when you scream, even like Job, who was in a very beside himself, unattractive way, the God of the universe, Father, hears you cry out to him as a parent hears the cry of his own child. The interesting thing here in verse 14 and again in verse 23, it specifically says, we eagerly, we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies as sons. In the Middle Eastern culture, the son, the eldest son, got two-thirds of the inheritance. Any oldest sons like me would be like, oh, that's, how come I wasn't in that? That sounds like a sweet deal. Two-thirds of the inheritance. Oh, I know exactly where I'm going to invest, right? And the, the point is, is there's a female that actually grew up as a missionary in that culture and was like, actually, as a, as a female... From the Western minds, you guys are all about equity and equality and and diversity and and genders and all that being fluid or whatever. This actually gave me comfort because I knew that I was adopted as sons. Even though I'm a female, I'm adopted as sons. It's not about a class thing, actually, in the gospel. It's it's very profound for for women to say, wow, actually, this isn't a... A second class, but it's saying, no, I am adopted as a son, as an heir in Christ. So when you're in Christ, male, female, Jew, Greek, black, Hispanic, it doesn't matter. We're in Christ. We're one. That's why Paul talks about in Ephesians, the unity of the gospel, which is profound because when you think about this from a Western mind, where we're all about diversity and all this dividing. When we think about what Paul's saying here is, no, you're led by the spirit of God as sons. Male, female, Jew, or Greek, you're all in Christ as sons, having the inheritance as an heir, the power to accomplish the purpose of the king of God. And it's a beautiful picture here we see as sons. It's not just a son or daughter. It's as sons, as an heir. So therefore, when you cry out, it's as if Jesus is crying out. The father will hear you cry. When your child screams in pain, what do you do? You, you, you run and you, you check on him. I remember as a, as a kid, you know, having, having Micah, because that's who I was, a kid, and they're like, yeah, good, all right, see you later. And we're like, uh, what? Thankfully, my wife knew a lot about babies and stuff, and we took them home, but I was like, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? And unfortunately, I'm a really heavy sleeper, so I needed a lot of elbow prodding to get up. Then I heard the cry, and then it's like, oh my goodness, like, ah, what's happening? How long has he been crying? And and, and then you realize, oh, sometimes there's, there's different cries. It's not all the same cry. Sometimes there's, I'm an irritated cry, change my diaper. And then you solve it real quick. And you learn not to pick him up at night and wake him up because then you're in a whole hour-long process getting him back down. You know, you, so you change the diaper real quick. 
Then there's the I'm trouble cry. There's the I want some attention cry. And, and the funniest one we figured out, took us a little while, was the I'm embarrassed and angry and don't look at me, don't touch me cry. Uh, the stranger at Vaughn's, I think, is scarred for life because he didn't know that cry. So when he went down and it was the like, I'm embarrassed and angry and I'll rip your head off if you come near me cry, we let him have his space because we knew the cry. The stranger didn't. He rushed over to him, tried to pick him up, and, and he unleashed the wrath of, I'm embarrassed and angry, and started swinging and screaming a whole nother cry of, I will kill you, get away from me, don't touch me cry. And I was like, I've never heard that one yet, but now I know what that, that cry sounds like. And he ran away, and it's this day and age, he's like, I'm going to be sued by these parents. They're going to think I was hurting their son, and I wanted to yell, but Jenna was like, no, sh-. I was like, hey, what are you doing to my son? Because it'd be even more funny and embarrassing for the person running away. But I composed myself, and I thought, you know, Micah did it justice. So the cries are very unique. I didn't know that. I thought babies just cried, but they all have different cries. I'm in trouble cry. And that doesn't mean I loved him any more or less because of the different cries. It just means I responded differently. And I still stirred the same amount of love in my heart. And there's this intense love, intense care that we see when we, we understand what Paul's saying. Hey, the Spirit adopts you as sons, so when you cry, you're as a son. And it's not just this attentiveness, but it's also this position of heirs. You have the inheritance. You have the power of God in you to accomplish God's work through you. As God loves you, that kind of love can flow to others around you. That's not the only kind of prayer we're given here. We're told not just about the Abba prayer, but look at the end. It's very interesting and a little odd. He says, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. The Spirit is interceding for the saints in accordance with God's will. What is that talking about? This is about interceding. What does that mean for us? Doing something in our place is what interceding means. So that means the Spirit takes over. Which, if you're, if you're very verbose, I'm sure you're like, hey, I got this Holy Spirit. Like, I'm, I can put together, articulate this. But if you're, if you're like me, it's like, oh, sweet, because I'm not really sure this makes sense. The grammar might be a little off, some subject. And, no, but you're like, I don't, there's those times when you're just blubbering and you're blabbering. And you're, oh, God, you're crying out for help. And it's wonderful to think about that when we don't know how to pray, when you're just emotionally drawn or trying to be empathetic, and then you're just stopped the Spirit lays out the petitions for you before the throne as they ought to be coming in accordance with God's will. Some of you know, as I've shared a little bit, but in the past, uh, freshman year of, of high school, the, the girlfriend that I had for a whole month, um, she broke up with me and I was just appalled. I'm like crying out like, God, what in the world? I sacrificed so much. I sat through hours of country music television, hey. top 10. <laughs> Like, I gave up so much for this relationship, and she gave me a couple rides to the beach, which was, but I mean, seriously, like, how am I going to get to the beach now, Lord? Like, how's this ending? This is, how is this part of your will? And, and you cry out, oh, Lord, please don't, don't break this relationship up. And of course, in hindsight, that was a stupid prayer. This was a different girl than Jenna, who's now my wife, and, and it's a good thing that relationship broke up. But that's not how I felt at the time. God didn't answer my prayer. He denied my prayer. Is that right? Listen, there's always a core part of our prayer, and then there's the stupid part of our prayer. 
The core part is the groan. The core part is help me. I think this is what I need to be to be the person you want me to be. The core part is please help me be this and give me this. That's the core part. And then there's the stupid part. And I happen to think that this girl who will do that, there's a certain sense in which you wondered, did he answer my prayer or not? Wouldn't it be great if God always gave you what you would have asked for? And it's interesting as we know God being gracious to give every time you pray, but to think he would just give you what you ask for every time you ask for it would be horrible because we're so stupid so often. And he knows all things and he's, he's all powerful and knows what he's going to give us for our holiness, again, not for our happiness. Because we're so stupid, most of our prayers are only about our happiness in the moment. We do have a God like that because that's what the scripture's saying. It's saying even when you don't know how to pray, the Spirit takes the core aspect of the prayer. The Spirit prays as you should be praying before the throne. Here's what this means. When you suffer... Can you come before God with that kind of confidence to know he's going to give you what you would have asked for in the spirit of the fact that right now you probably don't think what he's letting you experience is a good idea, but he is going to give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knew. So it means when you go to God, you can trust that even though you ask for him to remove this experience, he's going to allow you to go through it and give you what, if you knew what he knew, you'd ask for. Isn't that beautiful? He doesn't care about your happiness over your holiness. He actually prioritizes your holiness and accomplishes your good in the process. Only God can do that. Only Christ can do that. There's no one else but the gospel that gives us a theology and understanding to endure suffering. And then when Paul says, so we can rejoice in all seasons. Like, oh, okay, all circumstances. We can be thankful the process of your suffering before God, there'll be a calm, there'll be a groundedness. And that's your first resource is to, to pray with that groaning and longing, knowing the Spirit can intercede for you. Edit the stupid part out and just present the core part. And we can go with the confidence that he's gonna give you exactly what you need to do what he's called you to do. Secondly, repetition. Paul was a pastor and we, I understand this part because I'm a pastor too and constantly there are people who come up to pastors and say things like, if God really loves me, why are all these problems happening to me? If God really loved me, why this tragedy or why this suffering? Like, why, why did Hamas go out of Gaza and go to Israel? Like, what's going on? Why did this happen? Why is COVID? Why is this happening? Why is all this stuff happening? Like, well, Jesus actually said that the wars and rumors of wars were going to happen. And he said, even if the elect could be deceived. So look at all the religions and look at all, all the evil that religion is doing and dividing. And yet the gospel and all, only the gospel unifies. And, and we see just this past week, the, just amazing on social media, the, the next generation, Gen Z, by and large, is now worshiping Osama bin Laden for the 9-11 attacks in support of Hamas. And you see this delusion happening and, and, and in, in a lot of ways, you go, what? How in the world? But here's the thing is, when we encounter the suffering, we can go to God, and, and when you go, okay, how do I pray for these people? How do I pray for this? How do we reach this generation? How are we going to endure this? And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, 
provided we suffer with him. When we, when we see so many people suffering, we see suffering happening all around us. How do we pray? We have the comfort that the Holy Spirit's interceding and bringing that groaning and that, that cry to the Lord. And then Paul turns the tables and says in verse 17, oh, suffering doesn't prove, disprove the gospel. He says suffering is a sign you're a Christian. When you look at the Middle East, so often we forget how many Christians have suffered. When you look at the Middle East and we look at just CNN or Fox and it's all political for us, we forget how many Christians suffered and have fled but have died every time there's a regime change, every time guns are confiscated, Christians are just murdered and Jews are murdered. And it's, it's the suffering of our brothers and sisters that have been martyred. And so as we pray, we pray for the gospel to go forward in knowing that there's the seeds are planted in the blood of the martyrs. And we know that as a Christian now, we experience the growth through our suffering. So we say, he says, suffering is a sign you're a Christian. Look at what he says. We are children if indeed we share in his sufferings. I was thinking about that as we go forward and, and tensions increase and persecution increases and a pastor in, in Arizona was, was preaching on, on the street corner and he was a host at the door of one of the services and a guy walked by with a gun and shot him in the head this week. And so persecution is increasing. And, and so as we prepare for that, Paul says, yeah, suffering's coming. And it's actually here. And this is the time when they were, Christians were thrown in and being eaten by lions. And so he's preparing, he's talking to people that are enduring suffering and talking for us to be prepared for it. And we say, wait a minute, I just thought you said, after all I do, wasn't your point not that everyone suffers, that it's inevitable? Notice it's his sufferings that lead to glory. What is that that his sufferings? It's not just ours. There was a, a pattern in Jesus' life. The pattern in Jesus' life was rejection. His family didn't understand him. His friends didn't understand him. He was despised. He was rejected. He wasn't beautiful. He had no form by which we should desire him. He was a victim of injustice. He had one suffering after another after another. But his attitude was, not my will, but yours be done. He was faithful. He was trusting in God. He was obedient and as a result, his death led to life. His weakness led to strength. And there was a death and resurrection pattern here. What Paul is saying is if you do the same, then you share in his sufferings. When you follow Christ, when you claim that Christ is God, Jesus said that my students are not greater than the master. Therefore, you're not going to experience anything different than me. They hated me first. They're going to hate you. And so as we, if we embrace that, that's where I wish as a kid... I would have been prepared in middle school and high school with all the relational and the spiritual war to be able to say, hey, you know, I know they hated Jesus and they're going to hate me. They're not going to like me because I want to follow Jesus. I kind of thankfully had the comfort of the Holy Spirit as I grew in empathy and seeing, oh, you want to run after the world, but that's going to leave you empty. It's going to be like that wave that took out my sandcastle when I was a kid. It's going to leave you devastated. But I have the purpose and the peace of Christ I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to serve you. I'm still going to be your friend, but we're just going to, not going to be about the same things. And as I was flying back from, from this conference I was at this week, uh, getting to know a cohort of a, a handful of pastors that will be led by uh, an older pastor who's gone through 
being a pastor longer and caring and shepherding and teaching and leading and, and all the things over the next three years, I was getting to know one of the pastors that's in, in Bakersfield and was sharing kind of my story in a long season of, of suffering. And he's like, man, you stayed there for seven years. That's a long time. You could have just left and gone somewhere else. And I was like, yeah, but God wasn't done teaching me what I, he needed to teach me. So other people might be smarter than, than me and could learn it quicker, but it took me that long. So I, I resonate with Joseph because it just, you know, time after time, lesson after lesson. And he said, you know, God uses greatly those he's, he's wounded deeply. And I was like, I don't, I don't really see God wounding me. I think God allowed people to wound me. I think God was humbling me. I think when God gave Joseph the dream, he was like, dude, you're a punk and you can't lead yet. You gotta be humbled. And so he allowed his brothers to, to thrash him, beat him up, jump him, sell him into slavery, allowed him to be wronged. He's like, dude, this isn't, you know, young people are like, oh, right and wrong. And yeah, it doesn't always work out in the real world, does it, Joseph? Now you're in jail. How'd that work out for you? You know, not only were you innocent, but you're, now you're guilty of injustice. And now, now you're trying to get out and the guy's like, dude, we'll remember you for sure. Like, you're the dream dude. Thanks for looking out, breaking down the dream for me. Awesome, we're out. And then you, they forgot about him. And it's like, oh, that was his big break. And God's like, nope, it's not about you. It's about me. It's about my glory. It's about your holiness, not your happiness. Hang out in jail for a while. And we can all relate at, at some level. God uses greatly those he humbles deeply. He allows people to hurt. He allows you to go through suffering because he needs to humble you so you can get excited and hunger after being holy. And, and, and happiness is secondary. And those who've hurt or been hurt and been humbled, you can comfort those who are hurting. You have a greater empathy. I was told in between services, hey, I think, pastor, I think you actually have more empathy than you realize. And I said, yeah, you're probably right. I'm just still living that immature, selfish Brandon and, and super hyper aware that I'm bent that way to only think about myself. And so as I've grown and been humbled, I realized, man, there's a lot more hurt in your life. Each one of your lives as you're going into Thanksgiving, Christmas, the loss of a loved one, dads have passed away, husbands have passed away, wives have passed away, illnesses have been delivered from a doctor and they walk out the door and you're going, what, what does this mean? When did... How do we go from here? And these are different seasons that we're all walking in. But those who've been wounded, those who've walked that path can comfort you in a way that no one else can. And those who experience loss and grief, those you can grieve with those who've lost loved ones in a way that other people can't yet. And so Paul's saying, look, now always rejoice in our sufferings. By the way, notice he doesn't say we rejoice for our sufferings. This isn't masochism. He's not saying, man, middle of Thanksgiving, everyone's sharing what you're thankful for. And he's like, dude, I'm so thankful for all the sufferings. In fact, I just uh, drove my car off a cliff. So I don't have a, a car anymore. It's cool. Like I'm suffering without a car and I just lit fire to my house. So the fire department's there putting it out now. So now I don't have a car or house. Like I'm just so thankful for my... No, he doesn't do that. He's saying, I'm thankful... I'm thankful in. I'm thankful that God's here. I'm thankful that I have this God who will never leave me or forsake me. He's saying this earlier on. He says, we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Corey Tinboom, you can look up why she's an important person if you don't know. 
She said, look, I've always trusted God's promises and they've always come true. A great amount of suffering, yet she never wavered from trusting and having that hope in who God is and what he says. The Bible is constantly talking about that. Unless you're humbled, unless you're broken of your self-sufficiency so that God can fill you with himself, with the Holy Spirit, and gives you the understanding, the wisdom, the insight, the compassion for other people, you have the potential for greatness and real joy and real hope, and you have that character, that will, will pe- people will take notice of that because that's not in the world. The world's only full of lies and deception and will leave you empty, but when there's someone of, of purpose and character and integrity, they'll ask questions about that. What we're being told here is unless we go into the soil of difficulty and trial, without weakness there will be no strength, without death there, will be, there won't be a resurrection. First of all, we have to process through prayer, and if you process through prayer, then you have the hope and this, this pattern will actually bring reproduced in your life over and over and over. But that's not all we see perspective. This is the most powerful one. Paul is constantly saying what you need in order to handle your suffering is hope. You need patience. He says you have to look to the future. But the best thing he says is this amazing verse in verse 18. He says, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The suffering of the present time is not worthy comparing with the glory that is revealed, that is to be revealed to us. In the Greek word, it means reckon. It means to count. It's an accounting word. So put it this way. He's saying, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. So let's say you, you go to two men and, and you say, hey, we have this menial, diff- it's not difficult, it's just manual labor, you're sorting paper, and you're going to work for 80 hours a week in this room, and you're not going to have any vacation for a year. And at the end of a year, it's after this boring and tedious work, it's going to be very difficult emotionally, physically, because you can't leave. You're just stuck in a room for a year. And at the end of the year, one of the men you tell, you get 15 grand. And for students here, you're like, dude, 15,000 bucks sorting paper, okay. A year, I'll give up a year for that. And to the other one, you say, hey, at the end of the year, you get $150 million. Same experience, same room, two men. After a week or two, the $15,000 man is going to say, forget this. I'm going to go work in and out or I got some other business ideas. This is too emotionally taxing. But because each one is encountering the same thing, but each one has a different future expectation. So how we... How we encounter our momentary suffering is greatly impacted and influenced by our eternal hope. How we experience your present is completely shaped by what you believe your ultimate future will be. So we see as as he's wrapping this up, he's not just saying, hey, it's not just about you, it's also creation. Creation is subject to this as well. And it's deepest hope and longing is for Jesus. So why shouldn't yours be? Because he actually died for you. He didn't die for the, the animals. And, and, and it's interesting when we think about, there's a lot of pet lovers and, and creation, and my professor in college was, took it a little too far. You know, he'd come to class, he's like, oh, I saw a shapeshifter out there. You see those crows? We're like, I don't, Fred, I don't think they were actually shapeshifters. He's like, oh, really? It's like, okay, we're 
going there today. But maybe they were, I don't know. And he's like, dude, you see that one look at you? And it's like, yeah, that one actually might have been. He was looking, he was evil eye and dogging me. That might have been. And then he's like in tears the next day. He's like, dude, they cut, I can't believe they do this. Like, what happened? He's like, they cut the tree down. Like, they just totally, they're just soulless, just full of anger, rageful. I can't believe they took the tree. It's like, Fred, I don't think, like, no, trees have souls. You don't think they have souls? Like, okay, Fred. But reading this, it's like, oh, maybe I think he was onto something there. Like creation's groaning, wanting. And C.S. Lewis talked about how in the future way of glory, we're going to put on like the morning ray of, of sun and we're going to be one in, with creation. And it's like, oh, you know what? For the animal lovers and, and different animals, like I appreciate dogs and I'll, I'm not going to go any further than that. But that, like, imagine if their dogs weren't around. That, that's a huge void of, of God's creation and how we can enjoy animals. And I particularly would appreciate not having the threat of being eaten or mistaken by a great white, that I was a seal when I'm surfing. Like, that's a, a worry off my back. I could be worry-free. But I think the different layers of creation that we have yet to even understand we're missing out on. When you walk to the edge of Grand Canyon or you go through a tunnel and it opens up to a valley uh, like Yosemite, there's nothing like it. And those are the glimpses we see. What about all the other creation that's been subject that we can't embrace? We don't know what it's like to, to snuggle up to a lion. We don't know what it's like to, to, to really you know, hang out with a giraffe and, and just experience what it long necks like. We don't have these layers. And before I, I get too sideways on creation, because I don't really know other than just Paul brings up and it's like, dude, there's this creation thing you're missing out on. So apparently, not only is it just the whole creation has been groaning together in pains for childbirth until now. It's not just about you, I think is what he's saying. There's all these other things God has in store for you in the new heaven and the new earth. And the simplest of it is that we're waiting for this liberation and that everything's waiting for Jesus to come back. Lastly, is this effective? You're telling me God sees me in Christ as a child. When I suffer, I don't feel that God loves me, though. And we see from the text, it says the Spirit of God groans. The Spirit of God groans. It's not just creation that groans. It's not just we who groan. The Spirit of God is groaning. That's weird because remember the word groan means a death pain. A death pain. Again, hearing about God's love for you, God's plan for you, God who has a purpose for you, just believe and be saved, everything's great. So quickly and so easily it is, we don't, ha- we, we don't have the language, we haven't learned the idea and the theology of suffering ourselves, so then we don't talk to kids about it. We don't talk to friends about it. We're not, hey, how are you, you know, what's stressing you out today? What, what, what thought did you wake up with that's anxiety riddling and we go, oh, you're suffering today. Let me pray for you. Let's ask the Spirit. And here's comfort. The Spirit's groaning for you. How can the Spirit of God, how can God who's immortal and eternal, all-powerful, how can he be groaning? How could this all-powerful God who's eternal know what it's like for a woman screaming out, groaning in labor pains? How could that God know what it's like on the battlefield, groaning, crying out for rescue? How could God know what kind of suffering that we endure daily? How could God know that groaning? Well, that's exactly what we're about to celebrate with Christmas. Jesus, fully God, becoming man. That's what Christmas really is all about. Despite all of the Americanized Macy Day Parade, uh, it's October 1st, New Black Friday, Cyber Day deals, August 31st, Black Friday. This is, this is summer. What are you doing, Amazon? Like, no, you need more stuff, and I'll give you a dollar off. Buy it now. And you're like, ah, oh, 
Uh, you waited too long in your cart. Now it's $30 more. That's imp- what? Amazon, why are you manipulating me emotionally? I didn't, this isn't what Christmas is about. I'm supposed to be content in Christ. That's why it's just stayed in the cart. But God plunged into the ocean of vulnerability. He came into this groaning world. He came in and he was subject to rejection, weakness. He was subject to hunger, alienation, torture, and eventually death. We see in Mark 7, he's healing a man who's deaf and mute, suffering greatly. And there's a place, you might remember it, where he actually stands next to him, looks up to heaven, sighs, and the word in the Greek is literally, he groaned. He's already groaning because he's come into the world, he's standing alongside of sufferers, and he's feeling, he has great empathy. He's empathizing what they're going through. There's no hope unless a savior comes. There's no hope unless a savior dies. There's no hope unless a savior rises. And so no matter what you're gonna encounter, there is hope because Jesus did that for each one of you. Because that's what Jesus does on the cross. When he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He quotes Psalm 22, one. When he's on the cross, he's reading, he's reciting from memory Psalm 22, one. The whole verse says this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. As we see the spirit groans, we see Jesus is groaning on the cross as the warrior, the ultimate battlefield. Isaiah 53 says he went forth to face our enemies, evil and sin and death. He was crushed by them. Now he's groaning. He's dying and he calls out and no one comes. Scripture says God was absorbing in himself the penalty of the human race for all the evil that we did to each other and we did to God. He took it all on himself. All of God's wrath was poured out on Jesus that was intended for me and for you. He was paying the penalty for our sin. Anything we say, think, and do against God, he paid for. Jesus Christ was abandoned in his groaning so that you never will be. Jesus Christ was forsaken in his death groan. When you groan, the father hears it the way a mother or a father hears their child and rushes to you because he loves you. He hears the inarticulate cry, the mumbling, the groaning. He takes the stupid part out of the partition, drops it, and he answers with the core part. That if you were smart enough and you were wise enough and you had the will of God discerned and you would ask that way, he gives you that. He surrounds you and he makes you something great through the suffering. Someday he's going to put an end to all the suffering and restore to himself you and all of creation. Which is interesting. Because when you think about it, the lie I was told was you're just gonna go to heaven. But in Revelation, it talks about a new heaven and a new earth. Where we're gonna have the, the new creation. We're gonna have a relationship with one another and the creation. It's gonna be how it was before sin and the fall. We don't, we don't even have a understanding of that picture. And that's why Jesus said, go to the edges of the earth, Jerusalem, Judea, to the ends of the earth, and I'll be with you even to the end. It's always been about Jesus. And as we take the elements now, the, the opportunity is still believe in Jesus now and be saved. 
Turn from your sin, turn to your Savior, and then you too, when suffering comes, can have a a, a theology, can have a view, can have an understanding of how God's going to be with you through it, how God's going to grow you through it, how God's going to strengthen and fill you with his spirit. No matter how long that season is, it's a season, which means it's going to end. And the Holy Spirit is there to assist, and the Holy Spirit is there to intercede, to confirm God's will in that season. And it's so necessary and helpful for us to see how God used suffering in Jesus' life. And Jesus said, now I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. So as we hold on to Jesus and cling to Jesus, we have that confidence. His Spirit is in us to assist and intercede, to confirm what His will is in the seasons of our sufferings. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity we have to sit under your word and and hear the clear and challenge that in in the backdrop of the world that's gone gone awry, a mess, and and is crying out things that they don't, they know not what they do and they know not what they say, as Jesus said. And yet they're denying you. And we know that you're true and we know that you've sent us to go tell them about you. And that in and of itself at times is daunting. And we pray your spirit would fill us with confidence and boldness, knowing that when we suffer, we can rejoice in it. Because through it, you're going to produce character. And character is going to produce hope, Lord. And and we can have that hope that doesn't disappoint, knowing that this momentary trouble and suffering does not compare to the eternal promise that we have as heirs, as sons and daughters of the King. Lord, we pray for those who are believing upon your name for salvation, that you would fill them with your spirit and surround them with believers to encourage, pray, and walk with them as they follow you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.